1: Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time, taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. How can we measure the cultural influence of television legend Norman Lear? All in the family. Good Times, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, and Maud. At one point during the 1970s, more than 120 million people a week tuned in to a Norman Lear show. The iconic characters he created made us laugh, broke barriers, pushed boundaries, and showed us that humor with humanity can connect us. today. Norman Lear has written his most personal work yet, his own life story. In his best-selling memoir, Even This I Get to Experience, Norman Lear explains how the vertical journey toward his true self and a never-ending curiosity has kept him young. He also believes there may be no greater unifying spiritual expression than when we laugh together. You have told the story of us you have told the story of America. And now I think it's so great that after 93 years, you're telling- Who said that? (laughs) (laughs) 93 years, you're telling your own story, your own story. And I've heard and read that it took you six years of reflection to cultivate this.
2: I told myself actually 20 years ago or more that I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. I have six kids, they were asking me to please do it. And it took six years to actually, the time I said, okay, now uh I'm doing it. But I had a glorious staff for all those years who kept everything and- Notes uh, and- and Notes and everything I ever wrote down. Yes. They had ready
1: for me. Well, here you write in the preface of even this I get to experience. In my 90 plus years, I've lived a multitude of lives. There was that early life with my parents and relatives, a life as a kid with my blood buddies, Herbie Lerner and the Schwartz twins, twins. yes. A life (laughs) in high school zeroing in on the humor in our existence, a life in college cut short by World War II, a life as a crew member in a B-17 bomber flying 52 missions over Europe, a life in the world of entertainment with sub-lives and television and radio and movies and music, A life as a political activist, a life in philanthropy, a late starting life as a spiritual seeker, which we're gonna talk about today. Three lives as a husband, six as a father, with my youngest born 48 years after my eldest, and four as a grandfather. So I wanna know, is there a unifying thread that connects all those parts of your life?
2: I think the unifying thread is You know, there are two little words in the English language that uh, we don't recognize as being as important as they are for me. And they are over and next. Mm. When something is over, it's over. Over. And we're on to next. And if there was a hammock in the middle of those two words, that would be, I think, what the philosophers tell us is living in the moment. The hanger between over
1: and next. Whoa. That's powerful. And don't you find that there are so many times in life when a thing is over, people can't accept that it's over. Yes. And even when they get to the next, they're still trying to live with what's already been over. Yes. And isn't it difficult, though, when you've been super successful at one thing? I mean, the world knows you redefined what it meant to watch television. At one point, there were 120 million people watching all of your shows. And as each show came to its end, the time for it to be over. Was it hard for you to let go?
2: No, because I had a rehearsal to go to.
1: <laughs> you had the next. <laughs> for the next show. You had yeah, the next. You had yeah. the next.
2: There was always the next. Yeah. I always people all used to say, with so many shows, how stressful is that? And I would say, well, there was stress, and then there is joyful stress. Yes. And we were experiencing joyful stress.
1: I loved reading that, because it reminds me of my work now and certainly of my work every day of the Oprah show. And if you ask every producer, some of them here now, mm-hmm. who worked for 25 years on the Oprah show, that's what it was. It was joyful stress, which is very different than very being- Very different. Yes. And it comes across as such. Yeah. Because it's coming out, being born out of your passion. hmm Yeah. You write that when we laugh together, we are one. How does laughter elevate the human experience?
2: I believe my longevity has depended a great deal on the amount of laughter I've had in my life. You know, I love thinking about this. I could cry thinking about this. You stand behind an audience, as I did time and again, Mm -hmm. when Archie Bunker was at his funniest, let's say. When an audience laughs together, uh, every seat, you know, side by side, they tend to come up and out of their chairs a little and down and then back up again. Really? I I never thought
1: of that before. You're right. You do this, this, and then, ah, yes.
2: And if there's anything more spiritual in our life than audience moving on a belly laugh, I mean, that's praying, that's gratitude, that's enjoyment,
1: it's... I never thought of it until you said that, that it is like, it's your offering to the universe. it's your praise yeah
2: And it's offering to you yeah it's it's you and that one applies to the audience and the universe
1: when did you know that you could use comedy for something bigger
2: i learned as a kid i tell in the book my father went to prison when i was nine years old
1: you were devastated
2: i was yeah
1: born in 1922 norman lear grew up the eldest of two children in new haven connecticut in 1931, Norman's father, Herman, was convicted of selling fake bonds and sentenced to three years in prison. You moved to live with your grandparents like so many. I mean, so many of us in the African American culture are raised by our grandparents, as you yes. know. Maya was, I, I wasn't. The,
2: the four, three, four years I spent with them, uh-huh. my grandmother was the most important person in my life. Uh-huh. And I learned a lot from her. <laughs> And the expression, go, no, was mm-hmm. my grandmother. You know, if you came in and told her that uh, the Yankees had just won the World Series, she didn't know anything about baseball. She'd say, go, no. <laughs> <laughs> but in that smile was an understanding of life and the world and that other people would know a lot of things that she didn't know mm-hmm. and a deep understanding of the foolishness of the human Condition. I started to tell you, the foolishness of the human condition that occurred to me the night my father had been taken to prison. Mm-hmm. My mother was selling the furniture because she couldn't live in this place, and the shame she felt. And a host of people were over the house, and they were buying things. And some fool, I wanted to say something worse, <laughs> uh, was buying my father's red leather chair which had great meaning for me. We used to listen to football games together mm-hmm. in that red leather chair. And a grown man puts his hand on my shoulder and says, well, you're the man of the house now. Mm. And the next thing he says is, they there, man of the house doesn't cry. Somehow deep inside, I think that was the moment. I realized the foolishness of the human condition that in any situation, there is humor. Oh, you man. look into the face of a nine-year-old at that time in his life and you tell him he's the man of the house? Yeah. Oh, come on.
1: Yeah. But I also thought that that moment instilled in you this great desire that the one thing you wanted to be able to do was to take care of your family.
2: Well, that too came, Oprah, uh, as a result of being a kid of the Depression. hmm And the best thing, the seniors in my family, my, my grandparents and their friends and my tantas and uncles. and,
1: mm.
2: When somebody was, happened to be making a buck and able to support his family, he was a good provider. And that phrase, a good provider, has lived with me forever.
1: Mm.
0: Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meve. Thomas's presents Technique
3: with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies' splendor, for each one is unique like a snowflake. <laughs> Thomas's, huzzah! A toast to breakfast.
1: Throughout his 70 year career, Norman Lear produced, created, or developed more than 100 television shows. He says his intention was to make good TV using characters that represented real Americans. That meant tackling topics that were taboo at the time, like race, poverty, homosexuality, and divorce. Critics accused him of corrupting the culture. The televangelist Reverend Jerry Falwell once labeled him the number one enemy of the American family. So let's talk about the impact of your work, beginning with Archie Bunker. So the idea came from this sitcom that was already operating in, in London about a conservative father. And when you were first presented with the idea, did you think that would fly in America? Oh, I knew it would.
2: I mean, I never had a question about it. It was, it was the establishment that had the question. Yeah. As they continue to have the question. Yes. You know. The two things I used to hear all the time was, it won't
1: fly in the Bible Belt, uh-huh. and it won't fly in Des Moines. <laughs> it won't won't make it in Des Moines. That's, no, it won't make it in Des Moines. And this is what's so interesting. CBS even used a disclaimer in the beginning, basically saying, we don't have anything to do with this program <laughs> that we're putting on, yeah. because they were afraid of it.
2: If you find a problem with it, it's your
1: fault for watching. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. So no topic was off limits. Racism, sexism, bigotry, homosexuality, abortion. Well, you know, they
2: were all the things that were
1: happening in our lives. Yeah. We weren't making anything up. Yeah. We weren't making anything up because comedy actually reveals universal truths. Yes. Yeah.
2: And comes out of difficulty and conflict. Yeah. You You get sparks by rubbing two sticks together. Yes. And you get the same sparks from conflicting ideas. Mm. And uh, between parents and children and kids and kids, there's a lot of conflict. That's where the comedy comes from.
1: Was the idea to turn up the heat on race and all things controversial, was that the idea behind it? Or did that come from the success of the show? I think it... Certainly had
2: to be influenced by the success of the show, but and I the think times it, but, and the
1: times and the time.
2: But it came out of out of caring about yes. and paying attention.
1: Yeah,
2: I had asked the writers to read a couple of newspapers a day, and pay a lot of attention to their neighborhoods and their families and their kids and their mates and so forth. So we came in. is a perfect example. Uh, A writer came in one day and said, have you guys seen this? And it was an article about hypertension in black males Mm
1: -hmm.
2: being excessive, much more than whites. And uh, that's a great story for the Jefferson. So we wrote that story. The show aired, and there were tens of thousands of phone calls to local stations across the country that carried the show from African-American families that wanted to know more about Hypertension, but
1: well, you took the veil away from so many uh, subjects that had been taboo. I mean, I, I mean, homosexuality. Who would ever use language like that on on television before? No one had. No, but they did in the neighborhood. But they did in the neighborhood.
2: And that's all we were doing was bringing it, we, holding well, they, up a mirror. You were picking
1: from life. The same thing we did with the Oprah show all those years. The producers were yes. going through papers, looking at where store, sitting in beauty shops, listening to what people are talking about mm-hmm. and talking about what people and
2: are talking And holding the mirror up to life as it was really being lived.
1: Why do you think Carol O'Connor became resistant to to some of the scripts? Why do you think he became resistant?
2: Uh, we didn't share the same sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I say we, it's a global we. I'm talking about yeah. the writers, generally. Yeah. So we were asking him to do things he didn't think were funny. Were funny. Uh, and we had...
1: And you, de- and and you like, had to like, depend on him to pull it off.
2: Depend on him totally to pull yes. it off. And what happened with him was he fought the character up to a certain point. But of a certain point being Tuesday or Wednesday, or mm-hmm. you know, we we're going to tape the show on Friday. And he slipped into the character. And when Carol O'Connor became Archie Bunker and for a couple of days rehearsed in the character, nobody could write as funny as he. Then Archie Bunker was alive and well, and, and he, was, he would take the lines that we had written and turned them into Archie Bunker.
1: You say, though, that you believe sometimes it was fear guiding his difficult behavior. Yes, well, because he was carrying a lot of weight. Mm-hmm.
2: He was saying this is an American bigot. Right. right. And I would tell him all the time, but, but, but I don't think of you as a bigot.
1: You know what I thought was beautiful? I saw the in the documentary, um, it's called Just Another Version of You. There is an interview, which is also a bumper sticker that you used. Yes, it's before. my Just, bumper sticker. Just here. Another Version of You.
2: Uh, but that's when I believe we have versions, all of these people. We have versions, versions of, of each other.
1: And we all have our little suits on. Yes. Our little human suits. Yes. But within each of us is just another version of you. Absolutely. I, I, I feel that 100%. But I was fascinated by the interview with Dick Cavett that Carol O'Connor did, where Dick Cavett introduces him as um, Archie Bunker the, you know, the lovable bigot or the... And he says, you know, Archie Bunker really is, if you look at that character, I know people laugh at him, but the essence of Archie Bunker is that he was a a troubled guy. He was a guy who was miserable in his own life. And Mm -hmm. because of that...
2: Miserable because uh, he couldn't deal with progress. Yeah. Progress included a black family move next door. Yes. He was afraid of tomorrow and that started with the opening
1: song. Yes. Those were the days. Those were the days. Those were the days.
2: But Archie Bunker was fearf- was a fearful man. And he was a fool because he knew so little. But there's a reason Edith Bunker loved him.
1: Why did and she? I never understood why she loved him so much.
2: She because uh
1: I, I she thought she put up with him, be, and she understood him in a way that the rest of us could not. Why did Edith? Why did Edith? Because
2: we always asked ourselves, uh, "What would Jesus do?"
1: Yeah.
2: The Jesus we understand from yes. everything we read and hear about—not the way people per- uh, perform, yeah—but the way they speak of him. Yeah. And uh, and and Archie was a delightful human being to her. I mean, she loved the man
1: you knew that carol o'connor was carrying the weight of this character he was carrying the weight of this character he had to actually embody and live and enact that character and you knew that it would take its toll and you knew that you all would eventually come to, to, to come to heads about
2: well i'm not sure i knew ahead of time but as it was happening mm-hmm. the same thing with uh, with uh on on good times with John Amos and And, uh, Esther and and Esther Roll. Uh I mean look at the weight they were carrying. They were representing the first African American mother and father parents with their children on television. Yeah. And uh I don't think you had to be all that smart or or sensitive to realize that was a lot of weight.
1: The documentary American Masters Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You reveals tensions on the set of Good Times. John Amos and Esther Rolle, who played James and Florida Evans, voiced their concerns about the portrayal of African-Americans on that show, especially the character J.J. Evans, played by comedian Jimmy Walker. So when Esther was charging that there was buffoonery going on, that you can have comedy without buffoonery, did you think that what was being created was before Oh, no, not at all. Not at
2: all. It doesn't mean I had to be right, mm-hmm. but did I think so? Mm-hmm. No. J.J.'s, uh, J.J., I've thought about this a lot through the years. J.J.'s dynamite is as good an example of American excess, and I think about this all the time, as any I know, I didn't think shows should be on for nine years. There's some excess in that. Mm -hmm. Today, as you and I talk, excess in America, I think, is our biggest product. Mm. It's our greatest product. So had he not the opportunity to say dynamite as often as he had the opportunity, I don't think Esther would have felt what she felt and and, and anybody else who thought he was overdoing it.
1: Tell me about this day when you walk into your office and the Black Panthers are there. The Black Panthers oh, yeah. had come to see you. Yeah. They were upset about the J.J. character and the way uh, black men had to be portrayed on television. And so when they came and complained to you, um, the Jeffersons were born of that, were right. they not?
2: Well, we had already decided we were, we we're the you Jeffersons were going to be the Jeffersons. Maybe staying right next door to Archie. Mm. But the idea, <laughs> and it was uh, Genet Dubois, who. Wrote the lyric to Moving Moving On on Up. up. The idea of moving on up came out of that visit. We were going to do the Jeffersons, but let's make them
1: move on up. up. Yeah. So the Black Panthers came to see you to complain about the portrayal of blacks on television in good times. Right. You had already started conversations about a spinoff of George Jefferson. Yes. He was originally going to be next door to Archie. This is interesting. I didn't have the actor
2: in mind, and then I thought of, or somebody reminded me of Sherman Hemsley in Pearly, Wow. the musical. Yeah, I had seen that. Yes. And, oh my! That is the guy, because I wanted somebody shorter than Archie, smaller than Archie, who could let him have it closer to the ground, mm-hmm. <laughs> up from the ground, mm-hmm. uh, and in his face. Well... Wow. I'm gaining a few days or a week or of longevity just thinking about those two guys together. Really? Yes. <laughs> Sh- Sherman Hemsley giving it to Archie was just delicious. Yes.
3: Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers?
1: And of all the characters you created, you say here, Maud is the one that most closely resembles you. Why is that? Well, I
2: think it's true because uh, Maud was a, a liberal who was reflexively liberal. And I'm that person. I, you know, I think of myself as a conservative because you will not mess with my First Amendment my guarantees of religious and, and, and social and justice, everyone equal under the law. I think that's a very conservative way of thinking. But does my heart bleed for people who need... that I can help, right? Uh, and that the country can help, and the government can help, and so forth? Yes. So I think of myself as a bleeding-heart conservative. Yeah. And I just think it's all common sense. We are versions of each other, and that's what the Bible tells us. Aren't we supposed to help
1: each other, take care of each other, love thy neighbor? I mean,
2: it's all at the essence.
1: I think what's beautiful is that you've been a spiritual seeker most of your life, but it was really your wife, Lynn, who actually helped usher in your spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. What did she evoke in you? She was the first
2: person in my life that because she was reading a book called The Urantia Book, mm-hmm. which was very dear to her. Not a religion, but a spiritual book. Yeah, it's
1: about spiritual values.
2: Spiritual values mm-hmm. and and It's a, it's and a moral code and, and truth. And, so mm-hmm. and she was deep and deep into it. It had saved her in a sense. And we talked about that, and it was the first time I'd ever been invited or you know, encouraged. Uh, and, as we were falling in love, we were falling in love in this conversation you know
1: we about would, life we would, and
2: truth and what really matters yeah, what's
1: it all about alfie yeah, what's know, it all talking, about alfie yeah
2: and mm-hmm. that's the way we, we we fell in love that was our con- that was, that was our end. total conversation for the first couple of years of our relationship mm-hmm. and uh, you know i I'm still searching the you know, we're on two journeys, one vertical, and then the one into oneself. So one horizontal and one vertical. And one yeah. vertical. Yeah. And the, the, the deepest one, or the, you know, I, I think the most important one is the one into oneself. Yeah. And I'm still at it. So I, because I don't really know, I grope. Because I, though I'm Jewish, I never had been a, a temple member or a mm-hmm. religious person as deeply spiritual as I feel. Yeah, yeah. You know, another metaphor I love is a thousand-mile river, along a thousand miles of river. The climate changes. Yes. As a result of the climate changing, the vegetation changes. But the water that nurtures it all, the spiritual water, uh, nourishes everything. So that's the way I feel about the life of the spirit.
1: When I read that, it struck such resonance with me because I often say we are all duplicating nature. There are little bushes, there are maples or spruces, there are these oaks, there are redwoods, and we're all at different vibrational levels. You know, the bush isn't the the oak, but are fed by the same source. So your example of the Thousand Mile River uniquely different trees along the Thousand Mile River, mm-hmm. all being fed by that river. That's a beautiful metaphor for who we are in relation to the source of who we are. I love the way you put it with it. I'm listening to a cricket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, there is a quote that I love from Meister Eckhart, who was this uh, 13th century mystic who says, if the only prayer you ever say in your life is thank you, that would be enough. I love that. Mm-hmm. And you say, if you had one image of God, it would be thank you spelled out, yeah?
2: Yes, because my friend uh, Martin Marty is a great theologian at mm-hmm. University of Chicago mm-hmm. uh, for a great many years. And I was walking with him in Vermont one day, uh, and I asked him, Marty, what is the shortest uh, description of uh, worship you can give me. He said one
1: word Norman, gratitude.
2: Worship is
1: gratitude. Yes. And actually that image that you described uh, so beautifully of the people and the rhythm of laughter, that is the same thing, isn't it? It feels like.
2: It has always felt that way to me. Yeah,
1: yeah. What role do you think religion should play in our lives?
2: You know, This, what I'm about to say now, may be the single biggest truth, (laughs) fact. Let me sit up straight. All right. (laughs) In the name of God, the human of the species has been killing one another more than for any other reason Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. the beginning of religion and time. Yes. So that suggests to me... Not to do away with religion. People require it, need it, it nurtures, it saves. Let it be one-on-one. Mm. Don't bring it into the public. Take in the pew, in the family, in the, around the dinner table. But out there, all religions are that body of water running in that 1,000-mile river. Put it
1: there. So you're going to be teaming up with Shonda Rhimes, and I think Common also. Yes. Doing a documentary.
2: And America for Our.
1: Yes. A documentary called America Divided. What do you think this country needs most right now?
2: It needs healing. Desperately needs healing. And understanding, we don't have real conversations. You know, I mean, we don't have conversations about race, really.
1: Not at all. And, uh... And I think actually every single unfortunate thing that occurs, every time someone is shot, you know, irresponsibly by a police officer, every black person is shot, young black kid is shot, what happened in South Carolina, that's an opportunity for the conversation to be opened. And I'm like, what needs to happen for us to have the conversation? So you all are doing it, you're doing it.
2: Well, I have written maybe four or five presidents, the same letter. And m- most of the time I've said, uh, you know, you're far younger than I am. Mm-hmm. But, I and I'm a sophisticated man who has done well in our culture. And I need a father in the office of the president. I need a father. It doesn't matter your age. Be a father to us. Mm-hmm. Help us understand our, our, our common humanity. And that's why my bumper sticker reads just another version, and the, and the film. Just, just another, ver- just no, another, just another version, version of you. Because that's where it all starts, with that understanding.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell me, what does it feel like to be 93? Seeing what you see? I
2: think of myself as the peer of whoever I'm talking to. If I was sitting here talking to a 12-year-old, I'd be 12. That's the way I would feel.
1: That's fantastic. I feel that way too. I didn't know, maybe that's just it. I, maybe there is would, no way to feel for any certain age.
2: I would have guessed that about you. Yeah. Because you talk to everybody.
1: Yes, and I feel and like whoever it is I'm talking to yeah. at that,
2: that time. Well, right now, you're 93. Right now,
1: I'm 93. <laughs> How does it feel, baby? <laughs> yeah, but I'm just wondering at, you know, I'm 62, and it feels just like I've always felt. You feel that way?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've just learned that I'm 31 years older than you. (laughs) I can't believe that. I don't, I'm not older than 62.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I asked this question, uh, knowing that when I told Maya Angelou, when I opened my school in South Africa, I said, Maya, this is gonna be my greatest legacy, the school, she said, you have no idea what your legacy is. I have that in my mind as I ask you the question what is your hope for your own legacy?
2: Maybe two words, he mattered, mm. and understanding his bumper sticker <laughs> 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 that we have versions of one another. Yes. And the way I put it, usually when I'm saying so long, I will say it to you because I always do, to be continued, which I recognize at 62 mm-hmm. is. Uh, is even more important at 93.
1: Mm. Can you finish this sentence? I feel the presence of God when?
2: I feel the presence of God when I open an eye, mm. take a breath, sip a glass. I
1: experience love when?
2: I, I experience love moment to moment. Mm.
1: What do you think is the biggest obstacle to peace
2: the biggest obstacle to peace uh, is a lack of understanding of uh, it's crazy but it's been so easy to sit here and have this conversation with you and the hardest thing for people is to communicate and countries to communicate mm. and neighborhoods and neighbors and it's, and that's, uh, basically when we talk about leadership and conversation there, well, it's all the same thing, isn't it? When we we need the, the papers, conversation.
1: When we look in the papers and we every day are faced with these acts of violence and rage, what do you think is the source of that? Why does it feel like the world's gone mad a little bit?
2: I've got to be careful that I have an answer to every question mm-hmm. because that would make me sound wise. And wisdom is supposed to go with age, you know. Yes. When I was 88, 89, people didn't pay the kind of attention they paid to me when I crossed 90. Really? Yeah. I, I could get up. When I get up here, I might get a hand.
1: Just for,
2: <laughs> just for getting up. You know? <laughs> I, I cross a room, it's an ovation.
1: Really? That's <laughs> funny. That is funny. That's interesting. Did you notice a difference? People treat you differently at different ages. I noticed at sixty.
2: Oh, it's at ninety. Absolutely, absolutely. Something happens at ninety. Yes. I
1: hope I make it to you see know what, what that happened is. at ninety. What, to happened? Me? what
2: happened? I got a call from Oprah's company. <laughs> <laughs> they want to talk to me. <laughs> that didn't happen at
1: eighty-eight. <laughs> wow. It has been my honor to talk to you.
2: Mine to talk to you. And I love you.
1: And I love you back. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. May I say this? To be continued. (laughs) (laughs) To be continued. To be continued. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.
3: Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Isa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts.